We turn your attention, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We started a study on 1 Thessalonians last week. Uh, we've entitled it Faith, Hope, and Love because that uh, seems to be the prevailing theme uh, that Paul uses. We saw how he used it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 last week. Uh, uh, today, uh, we want to look at the first 12 verses of chapter 2. And really, primarily, what Paul is dealing with here has to do with issues of personal integrity. Uh, uh, and what we see in these 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is that Paul had a deep and personal concern for the development of this young church. We told you last time in the introduction uh, that this church was only at the most about two years old at the time uh, that Paul uh, writes this letter. This church was established right after uh, Paul had uh, a rather tragic and terrible experience uh, in Philippi. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, uh, that, that's, the, th that's the, the incident that we know about where he was put in prison and he and Silas prayed at the hour of midnight and God miraculously opened the prison doors and caused them, uh, gave them the opportunity to escape. Well, when they left, uh, they traveled to Berea and from Berea they traveled to Thessalonica where they organized this church. They ran into trouble uh, even in the organization of this church, uh, and uh, they, they, they were confronted by Orthodox Jews who opposed their teaching, and uh, so they had to leave and move on to other places. But as he writes back, he's writing uh, what turns out to be a very basic uh, epistle, uh, a very elementary uh, epistle uh, with regard to doctrinal issues. And it's important from time to time, we said this last week also, it's important from time to time to be reminded of the basics uh, because uh, you can get away from the basics, you can forget the basics, and uh, then you have problems when it comes to applying uh, the teachings of Scripture in the more complex issues of life. Now, if that sounds too elementary to you, just think about your own lives for a second. Have you ever gotten so busy that you got out of the routine of praying? You know, there, there, there are people who were raised on a certain routine of prayer. Uh, uh, you either pray in the morning or you pray in the evening, whatever your routine is, you, you have a routine. And then something interrupts the routine. There's a change in, in your job schedule, perhaps, or you have a different uh, thing that comes up that interrupts your normal prayer time. And so you get out of the routine of praying at X, X time. And you know what happens? For a long time, you don't pray at all because you didn't pray at the time when you were supposed to pray. 
And when I say supposed to, I'm, I'm not talking from a church standpoint. I'm talking about from a personal standpoint. Everybody has certain times blocked off for certain things. I, I, I have been uh, working out uh, for the last four months, and I work out at 5.30 in the morning. It needs to be at 5.30 in the morning. You can't tell me, well, we can't go at 5.30 today. Come back around 9. That ain't going to work for me. 5.30 is when it works. If you say come back at 9, what you're really saying is come back the next day because it doesn't fit within my routine. Now, I'm not saying that everybody is as slothful as I am. But what I am saying is that sometimes when the routine is broken, we forget the fun. There is nothing more basic to our Christian lives than prayer. And yet, when you get out of the routine of praying, it can have serious consequences when it comes to how you deal with the other issues that arise in your life. So it's important that we maintain the routine. It's important that we be reminded of the routine. If you plan on doing calculus, you better know how to do arithmetic. You, you, you better know how to do addition and subtraction. So, so, so it's important that Paul spends time with the Thessalonian church, sharing with them the basics. Although in these verses, he's really not dealing so much with doctrinal issues as he is with defending his own personal integrity. In order to keep things within its context, you need to go back to the end of the first chapter. Let, let me remind you, and for those who are watching uh, uh, on television, uh, the Bible was not written in chapters and verses. The, these epistles were not written in chapters and verses. Chapters and verses were added later by editors. And sometimes the chapters and verses interrupt the natural flow of the text. So that even though we're looking at chapter 2, verse 1, it is actually a continuation of what was written in the first chapter. So in order to keep the flow, go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting with verse 7. And we're going to read all the way through to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Do you know that all over the provinces of both Macedonia and Achaia, believers look up to you? The word has gotten around. Your lives are echoing the master's word, not only in the provinces, but all over the place. The news of your faith in God is out. We don't even have to say anything anymore. You're the message. People come up and tell us how you received us with open arms, how you deserted the dead idols of your old life so you could embrace and serve God, the true God. They marvel at how expectantly you await the arrival of his son whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from certain doom. So friends, it's obvious that our visit to you was no waste of time. We had just 
just been given rough treatment in Philippi, as you know, but that didn't slow us down. We were sure of ourselves in God and went right ahead and said our peace, presenting God's message to you, defiant of the opposition. It's important that you read the verses leading into that because it explains what he means in chapter 2, verse 1, when he says it's obvious that our visit to you was no waste of time. He was talking about the fact that they had done so well in the organization of this church and in the immediate growth of the church from the time of its organization. Somebody had been putting out the rumor that they hadn't done anything at all that they had been wasting their time, that their labor had been of no effect. Don't you just hate it when folk who don't know nothing about what you're doing got opinions about what you're doing? Don't you just hate it when, when, when folk think they know and talk like they know and act like they know and they don't know nothing at all? Paul says, folk been saying I've been wasting my time. Folk been saying that, that he's on his normal Paul ego trip. Well, I take issue with that. I'm speaking for Paul. I take issue with that because you are the evidence. The fact that this church exists, the fact that this church is standing on the principles of Christ, the fact that you turned away from idol worship, and turn toward the true and living God makes it clear that we ain't been wasting our time at all, but that we have been doing the work that God has called us to do. Now, he adds this to, to, to his defense of his work. He says, through this whole process, we have exhibited courage, and courage is important. Because courage makes it possible for us to do ministry. If you're serious about doing ministry, you're going to have to show some courage at some point in time. Because if you're serious about doing ministry, trust me, somebody's going to try to stop you from doing what you're doing. Turning your Bibles to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, it's not what we're here to talk about, but it's just an example of what I just said. Look at Nehemiah chapter 2. It was the month of Nisan, in the, I'm sorry, verse 1. It was the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. At the hour for serving wine, I brought it in and gave it to the king. I had never been hangdog in his presence before, so he asked me, why the long face? You're not sick, are you? Or are you depressed? That made me all the more agitated. I said, long live the king, and why shouldn't I be depressed when the city, the city where all my family is buried, is in ruins, and the city gates have been reduced to cinders. The king then asked me, so what do you want? Praying under my breath to the God of heaven, I said, if it please the king, and if the king thinks well of me, send me to Judah, to the city where my family is buried, so that I can rebuild it. Uh, skip down to verse 8. 
The generous hand of my God was with me in this, and the king gave them to me. When I met the governors across the river, the Euphrates, I showed them the king's letters. The king even sent along a cavalry escort. When Sanballat the Harnite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very upset, angry that anyone would come to look after the interests of the people of Israel. Nehemiah learns that the city of Jerusalem is in ruins. 16 years after people had been sent back in order to rebuild the city and he's distressed by it and he goes to uh, King Artaxerxes and he asks for permission to go and lead in the rebuilding effort. That's doing the work of God. That's doing the ministry of God. And the king grants him permission to go. And Nehemiah is very clear and he says God is the one who made it possible. God was with me. God led me into this and God granted me favor so that I could succeed seed in what I was doing. And what's the very next thing that you read after Nehemiah gets permission to go? Two folks stand up and say, why are you doing this? Sam Ballard and Tobiah were very upset that anyone would come and try to rebuild the city. My point is simply this, in case you're sitting there saying, I don't get the point. Let me make it clear. The point is this, whenever you decide to stand up for Jesus, Expect somebody to stand against what you're trying to do. It's inevitable. It is going to happen. Because there are folk who don't want ministry to go forth. They're going to always find a reason to stop it. And most of the time, the reason ain't got nothing to do with spirituality. I said Sunday that the church is not a bastion of theology. It isn't. You know, we, 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 we like to throw around the term theology and theological as though that's the basis upon which the church is built. Theology simply means the study of God, okay? But the church ain't built on the study of God. It's really not. The church is built around culture. The church is built around what we're used to. You want to know why many people, if I'm not talking to you, and I'm not talking to you, but you want to know why certain people join certain churches? Because it fits within their culture. It ain't got nothing to do with theology. It fits within their culture. They like going to church with people that they know with people that they work with, with people who live in the same neighborhood with them, people who attend the same social groups that they are a part of, they like that. It is a cultural thing. And, and we bring our culture with us into the church. And whenever anybody tries to put too much Jesus in our culture, somebody's going to push back. It is the nature of who we are. It takes courage to stand up against that reality. It takes courage to stand for what God has called you to do. And that's what Paul says here. Paul says that we were given rough treatment in Philippi, 
and the treatment was so rough that some folk would quit and go home. You don't know anybody like that, do you? You gonna treat me like this? Forget about all y'all. I'm going back where I came from. He says, but we were certain of what it was we were doing. We were certain about the one who called us and we were not about to quit. We moved forward and we came to you and we shared the gospel with you. Now, if you look at the record, even when they shared the gospel in Thessalonica, they ran into trouble. They were run out of town. And yet he's writing back to them because he's convinced that what he is doing is the right thing. It takes courage to do ministry. And by the way, let's be clear. Everybody in here who's a Christian is a minister. Somebody's going to read this thing and say, well, you ain't talking about me. I ain't, I ain't no minister. Yes, you are. If you are a Christian, if, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're a minister. And somebody is, somebody is getting their cue from you. I say it again and again and again. For many people, the only Jesus that some folk will see is the Jesus that they see in you. So, yes, you are doing ministry. And, and, and it's important that you stand on your conviction and that you exhibit courage against the pushback that will inevitably come as you do ministry. Now, let's define courage right quick. What is courage? Courage, this is the Fred definition. I didn't look it up in, 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 in Webster. Okay, this is the Fred definition. Courage is not being fearless. But courage is acting with integrity and fidelity, even when you are afraid. This idea that people put forth that I ain't afraid of nothing, I'm scared of folk who ain't afraid of nothing. I don't want to be around folk who ain't afraid of nothing. To me, there's something mentally unstable with somebody who says, I ain't scared of nothing. In life, there's plenty to be scared of. Courage is not being fearless. Courage is acting with integrity and fidelity, even though you are afraid. Courage is persevering. Courage is pressing through. It is not exhibiting an attitude of bravado. It is exhibiting an attitude of commitment. I'm committed to this process regardless of what, the, what toll the process takes on me. That's what Job means when he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job was not being crazy when he said that. And Job was not wishing to die, although there were sections where he said, God, if you want to just kill me, come on and kill me. But, but he, he was not 
exhibiting a death wish. What he was saying was, I trust God. Even if where God leads me can end up in my being put to death. I trust God. Even if following where he leads me puts me in danger. I trust God. Even if following where he leads me puts my reputation in jeopardy. I trust God. Even if following where he leads me will lead me into situations where I am humiliated, where I am embarrassed, where I am ridiculed, where I am criticized. I trust God because I know that God is bigger than I am. And he's bigger than my trouble. The most important revelation that you can have in life is the revelation where you realize that your life ain't about you. Your life is not about you. Your life is about God and about what God would have you do. When Paul's life was about Paul, Paul was going about doing what Paul wanted to do. He was going hither and yon, to and fro, wreaking havoc on Christians, destroying their lives, imprisoning people. He stood there approvingly when, when Stephen was put to death. That was when Paul was following Paul's mind. That's when Paul thought he was the most important thing. But when Paul came to know who Jesus was, and when Paul learned that it was not about Paul, but that it was about Christ, Paul never again did anybody any harm. And he opened himself up to harm being done to him. Physical harm, emotional harm, economic harm, social harm, spiritual harm. You read 2 Timothy chapter 4. Read, 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 read the last letter that Paul writes, which is 2 Timothy, and, and in the last chapter. And do you know what Paul says? I'm here by myself. He says, all the folk that, 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 that were working with me have left. He says, one left because he loved this world more than he loved the gospel. You know folk like that? One left because he needed to take care of other business. Others went to different places. He says, except for Luke, I'm here all by myself. And then he adds this, but in spite of people having left me, God, Jesus, never left me. It's the difference between living for you and living for him. And when you live for him, it is not that you become fearless. It is that you recognize that life ain't about you. And the, the, the singular goal for your life becomes, Lord, what would you have me to do? It's obvious that our visit to you was no waste of time. We had just been 
given rough treatment in Philippi, as you know, but that didn't slow us down. We were sure of ourselves in God and went right ahead and said our peace, presenting God's message to you, defiant of the opposition. God tested us thoroughly to make sure we were qualified to be trusted with this message. Be assured that when we speak to you, we're not after crowd approval, only God approval. Since we've been put through that battery of tests, you're guaranteed that both we and the message are free of error, mixed motives, or hidden agendas. We never used words to butter you up no one knows that better than you. And God knows we never use words as a smokescreen to take advantage of you. First thing I want to jump on is this whole idea that Paul says God tested him. Let me ask you a question. If God tests us, what's the purpose of God testing us? I got a bunch of retired teachers in here. When you tested your students, what was the purpose of your testing your students? You wanted to see how much they knew. You wanted to see how much of the information you had given them they were able to retain. Right? Okay. I wanted to make sure I was right about that. Do you think that God has to test Paul to figure out what Paul knows? Let me let you in on, on, on the difference between you and God. He's God. You ain't. You got you to gotta test your students to figure out how much of what you gave them they still know. God already knows what you know. God already knows what you're going to do. God already knows what the caliber of your spirit is. So when Paul says, God tested me thoroughly, you have to ask yourself, what was the purpose of the test? And I got a good answer for you. The test was not so that God would learn something. The test was so that Paul would learn something. I want you to keep that in mind whenever you, you, you're going through something. Whenever, because James says, count it all joy when God puts you through testing. Why is that? You think God don't know? What, one of the characteristics of God is that he is omniscient. Omniscient means he knows everything. And God ain't like us. God doesn't suffer with memory lapses and memory loss. So, so, so God doesn't need to be reminded. I tell this to my preachers when they, whenever they pray. You ain't got to tell God that he was in the fiery furnace. He knows he was in the fiery furnace. You ain't got to tell God that he separated water. He knows what he did. God, God, God ain't got amnesia. God ain't got Alzheimer's. God knows what he did. But the purpose of our going through tests is so that we will learn something about us. And here's the thing. Whether you pass the test or fail the test, 
it's still a learning experience. If you pass the test, praise the Lord. I'm in a place where I didn't think I was. I'm, 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 I'm more mature than I even thought. And, and that's a good thing, and that's not arrogance. When you figure out that you're more mature than you thought you were, you ought to say, thank you, Jesus. But even if you fail the test, it's beneficial because it reminds you of places where you still need to work, things that I still need to develop. So when Paul says that God thoroughly tested me, the testing was for Paul's benefit, not so that God would learn something new. Our testing is for our benefit. If you think that you're in a place and you find out that you're not, isn't that helpful? If you're smart, then, 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 then what you do is you go back and, and, and you try to get stronger in those places where you're not as strong. Sometimes we think we're better in things than we are. Sometimes we think we're farther along than we are. And that's why we get so judgmental about other folk. We read about somebody who did something. We hear about somebody who did something. And we say, I'd never do that. I would never. You'd never catch me in that situation. If you stop with you'd never catch me, you might be right. But if you say you'd never catch me in that situation, my response to that is keep getting up in the morning. You don't know what you do if you broke till you've been broke. I'm not making excuses for anybody, and I'm certainly not, not trying to, to soft sell criminal behavior. But there's a reason why kids stand out on street corners selling dope. It's because they can't make money doing anything else. It, it, it's certainly not because they just want to be hassled by police. It's certainly not that they just want to expose themselves to all of the dangers that go on. It's that they don't know how to do anything else. Now, you, you, you can decry a system that let people get to be of a certain age and still they ain't got no job skills, and that's a good thing to talk about. But the reality is some people are doing what they're doing to put food on tables and to put clothes on people's backs. And so when you say, I'd never do that, be broke. And then let's see what you would do. So, some of you are sitting there with your nobility and your, your eruditeness. Just get, just get yourself in trouble. I never thought I'd be in this situation. Trust me, ain't nobody ever thought they were going to be in the situation that they're in. It's important that you go through these periods of testing because testing will help you to know who you really are. Testing will humble you. 
Because the next thing that ought to come out of your mouth after you realize that you would do what you said you'd never do is the prayer that everybody knows. There's one prayer everybody knows. Not most holy, all wise, eternal God, our heavenly Father, we come before you once more and again, knee bit and body bowed. No, that, that ain't the prayer I'm talking about. The prayer that everybody knows, Lord have mercy. Everybody knows that prayer. Save me, Jesus. That, that'll be the next thing out of your mouth. Paul says he was thoroughly tested by God. And the testing was not for God's benefit. The testing was for Paul's benefit. What is it that Paul says he learned through this testing? He learned that he was trustworthy with that which God had placed in his hands. And what is it that God had placed within his hands? The gospel. The message. As a result of this testing, Paul says that both the message and the messenger are better. That's important. Gospel doesn't change. There is either the gospel or there is not the gospel. The gospel does not change. The message does not change. But the messenger changes. The messenger ought to get better. And the only way the messenger gets better is that he has to go through periods of testing. And he has to overcome periods where he falls short. I've been preaching since 1981. I've been pastoring since 1986. Sometimes I look back at stuff I preached 10, 15 years ago. And I have to get down on my knees and I have to apologize to God for some of the crazy, stupid stuff that I said. Didn't, didn't have anything to do with the message. The message is the message. But the messenger was messed up. And I'm talking about me. The messenger was flawed. The messenger had problems. And the problems came through the preaching. The problems came through the teaching. And any preacher who's worth his salt will acknowledge that what I just said about me is true about them too. And it's true about you, too. I just told you that, that, that all of us are ministers. If, 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 you, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a minister. Can you sit there with complete honesty and say that you have always carried the gospel message with integrity? 
that you've, you, you, you have never fallen short in, in, in the way that you carried the gospel message? All them times when you cussed folk out, because they got on your last nerve. You, you ain't never do that? I see y'all looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you, 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 you've never done that? Since you've been saved, you ain't never been nowhere you knew you, were, you ain't had no business being? Since you've been saved, you ain't never done nothing you knew you ain't had no business doing? Since you've been saved, you ain't never thought nothing that you knew. Okay, I'm just, I, I was just checking <laughs> to see. When we, when we go through this, 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 this battery of tests, the, the, the end result helps us to be better bearers of the message. I thank God that I'm better today than I was yesterday. But I ain't crazy. I know that given the right set of circumstances, I'll do the same stupid stuff in the next five minutes that I did five years ago. That's why I, I can't ever depend on me. I have to constantly lean on him. Paul says, through the testing, both the message and the messenger got better. He says something else that, that, that's important. He says that it's important that we recognize that we should not overlook the message because we don't like the package that the message comes in. Read what he says. He says, we never use words to butter you up. No one knows that better than you. And God knows we never use words as a smokescreen to take advantage of you. He says, be assured that when we speak to you, we're not after crowd approval. Only God approval. Paul is, is intimating here the danger that, that lurks within the hearts of people, that sometimes they don't want to hear what you have to say, because not because what you have to say isn't the truth, because they don't want to hear from you. You could be telling folk the right thing. And they don't want to respond to it. They don't want to hear it because they don't like you. They don't think that, 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 that you are worthy of bearing the message. We see this a lot in local congregations. In the year of our Lord, 2020, there are still congregations that have problems when the message comes through a woman, which is the stupidest thing that you could ever possibly see. But, but, but still, there are people who don't want to hear the message not because there's anything wrong with the message, but because they don't like the package in which the message comes. 
There's some folk who don't want to hear the message if it comes from black folk. There's some folk who don't want to hear the message if it comes from white folk. There's some folk who don't want to hear the message if it comes from somebody outside the United States, some third world country. We throw up all kinds of obstacles that keep us from responding to the truth of the message. Not because there's anything wrong with the message, but because we don't like the package in which it comes. Now, you can say what you want about Southern Baptists, and I got a whole lot to say about Southern Baptists. But Southern Baptists figured this thing out about 30 years ago, 30, 35 years ago. And that's why Southern Baptists started planting churches uh, that were ethnocentric. They started planting black churches with black pastors so that black folk would hear the message because they knew that some black folk wouldn't hear the message unless it came from a black face. They started planting Korean churches and, and Asian churches and, and Hispanic churches because they knew that, you, that, that certain people would not hear the message if it didn't come from somebody who looked like them. Criticize them all, all you want to. And I could write a dissertation on the problems with Southern Baptists. But they got that right because they know who we are. They, they, they know what our flaw is. And our flaw is we want to see somebody who looks like us. Here's the thing. The gospel is the gospel no matter what the vessel looks like. The vessel ain't important. What's important is the message. Now, if you find that the vessel ain't giving the message, the problem is not with the vessel. The problem is with the message that the vessel is giving. But if you hear the truth, it should not matter to you whether the truth came out of somebody who was tall or short or fat or thin or anything in between. What you want is the truth of the message because it is the message. It is not the messenger. It is the message that transforms lives. Even though we had some standing as Christ's apostles, I got 15 minutes left, we never threw our weight around or tried to come across as important with you or anyone else. We weren't aloof with you. We took you just as you were. We were never patronizing, never condescending, but we cared for you the way a mother cares for her children. We loved you dearly, not content to just pass on the message. We wanted to give you our hearts, and we did. Paul moves to, 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 to something else that's important. And that is when you are truly concerned about the people that you are serving, then you don't just serve with your head. You serve with your heart. You serve with your life. It involves a commitment. If I tell you that I love you, and I just keep saying 
I love you. I love you. I love you. You know I love you, right? I love you. I love you. I really love you. If if I say I love you all day long, but don't ever show it, I love you. Don't get too close. I love you. Don't talk too long. I love you. Don't ask for anything. Nothing. If, if, if all I do is say I love you, but there is nothing in my demeanor, nothing in my behavior that shows that I love you, you ain't crazy. After a while, what you conclude is, you know, he says he loves me, but he don't really love me at all. Paul says, we didn't mistreat you. We didn't condescend toward you. We didn't overlook you. See, we didn't just share the message with our minds, with our intellect, with our tongues, but we lived the gospel. I was watching on, on uh, YouTube uh, the other day. There, there was an interview done by Pastor Noel Jones out of California. Some of you may have seen it because it's, it's, it's been seen by hundreds of thousands of people. You ought to go and look at it. He was asked the question about the future of the mega church. He pastors a church with some 17,000 members, and, and he was talking about the future of the mega church. Uh, and, and, and what he said was not just true about the mega church, it's true about any church. He says that this generation, of people don't want to hear high-minded, erudite oratory. They want to see you put the gospel to work. He says, if all we do is gather in sanctuaries and worship centers and talk about the gospel, but that's never translated into lives that live the gospel. Millennials are going to take a walk because they're going to conclude that what you're doing is not genuine, that it's not real. And, and, and what is it that our beloved president loves to say? Everything is fake. I, I, everything, I, everything that he doesn't agree with, it's fake. Well, this generation of people believes that a lot of what we do is fake. And here's the difference between them and our president. The president is wrong. In many cases, they're right. They want to see it. They want to feel it. They, they, they want you to get your hands dirty. They look around at what's going on in the world. Stand out on that corner and look in any direction. You're going to see a need. And, and, and this generation is going to say, after you've gotten through in here, what are you doing to meet the need out there? That's the challenge of the gospel. That, that, that's the challenge that lays before us. Not knowing the right words, 
but employing ourselves, devoting ourselves to living the gospel. Jesus said, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick and in prison, you came to visit me. When I was naked, you gave me clothing. Living the gospel. That's what they want to see. And Paul says, you know that I didn't just talk the talk, but I walked the walk. That's what each of us needs to be able to say about the gospel. Not just that we memorized it, not just that we could quote it, but that we actually lived it. Eight minutes. You remember us in those days, friends, working our fingers to the bone up half the night, moonlighting so you wouldn't have the burden of supporting us while we proclaimed God's message to you. You saw with your own eyes how discreet and courteous we were among you, with keen sensitivity to you as fellow believers. And God knows we weren't freeloaders. You experienced it all firsthand. With each of you, we were like a father with his child, holding your hand, whispering encouragement, showing you step by step how to live well before God who called us into his own kingdom, into this delightful life. As Paul concludes this section of this letter, he emphasizes his faithfulness his integrity, his single-mindedness, and his patience. This is important. If we are to live the gospel, it requires integrity, it requires single-mindedness, and it requires patience. What you cannot do today is say, I lived the gospel yesterday. And think that living the gospel yesterday balances off today. Those of you who are still working, because somebody's got to go back to work in a few minutes. Those of you who are still working, you don't get paid for tomorrow's work until you do tomorrow's work. If, 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 if you get paid by the hour or by the day, you don't get paid for Thursday until Thursday comes, right? So what makes you think you can tell the Lord, well, I was good yesterday? And being good yesterday ought to make up for the fact that I wasn't so good today. That doesn't work, does it? You teach, like I, I said, I got a bunch of retired teachers in here. If your students came in and said, well, I did the homework last week. Don't I get credit for having done the homework 
last week? That wouldn't work, would it? Well, if you got that much sense, what makes you think the Lord ain't got that much sense? The gospel requires single-mindedness. It requires integrity. It requires patience. Especially as you share the gospel with others. Let me tell you something about, about folk. You can do the right thing by folk 364 days. If you treat folk wrong on the 365th day, that's all they're going to remember. Them other 364 days, gone. Joe was a good fellow. Well, now, you know, no, Joe ain't. Because you remember on December 31st, 1997, Joe cussed me out. That's what folk remember. Folk, folk, folk remember your worst moments. That's why I say it requires patience and single-mindedness. If you're going to teach, then you have to do it over and over and over again. You can't forgive yesterday. You've got to forgive today. You can't serve yesterday. You've got to serve today. You can't teach people to forgive and serve yesterday. You've got to teach people to forgive and to serve and to love today. Because it is a day by day by day proposition. What you ate yesterday is gone. Because I'm going to eat in about three minutes. And I ain't telling my stomach, that's all right, we ate yesterday. Now I need something today. In the same way, the gospel has to become fresh every day. And that requires personal integrity. That requires single-mindedness. That requires patience. And Paul says, I have exhibited all of those things before you, and God has blessed what we do. And what Paul says about what he did, we can say about us. If we exhibit integrity, single-mindedness, and patience, God will bless our efforts.